The following presentation was recorded live at the 2015 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. Hear me all right? No? Okay. Um, so I first want to, before we begin this uh, illustrious and interesting panel, I want to frame this a little bit by explaining why a panel on psychedelics at Bioneers. Um, now, many of you, I think I recognize quite a few faces, so some of you might have heard a variant of this spiel before, but forgive me, I, I still think it's important to present it. Um, so many people who are, you know, in, environmentally active and other folks we work with wonder, why would you cover such a controversial topic that doesn't re directly relate to either social justice or sustainability in their eyes? And the fact is that, um, you know, obviously it's not a major component. This isn't the MAPS conference, but we always, almost always include something on this sub subject for a couple of reasons. One is that to be intellectually honest, we, a lot of us um, who came of age in the 60s and 70s and some later, uh, who are environmentalists were strongly influenced by um, some of these substances. They didn't create our biophilia, but they certainly helped enhance and trigger it. And so many of us come, have been you know, influenced by our experimentation, if you want to use that word, um, with, with some of these substances. Um, the other thing is that, yes, these are extremely powerful tools, and there's there certainly many cautionary tales about how not to, to uh, use them. Uh, and as someone who did my fair share of uh, ridiculous abuse in, in my younger days, uh, I can attest to the fact that there are there, many ways not to, to do psychedelics, but um, I'm still standing, unlike some people. Um, and, uh, um, uh, right, they're all sitting, but, uh, no, yeah, uh, 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 um, but what I would say is that, um, so yes, one has to be, be uh, careful, these are tools, and certainly there were, uh, there was a kind of over-enthusiasm at the height of this uh, movement in the 60s, and so a reaction set in that really crushed almost all research because there had been abundant research in the 50s and 60s. Um, and fortunately, in the last 15 years or so, I mean, we still are fighting the culture wars of, of that era and the Civil War, apparently, in our politics. But um, um, fortunately, the, the, the ice has begun to melt and there has been a, a resuscitation of serious research uh, on psychedelics, and that's one of the main topics we're going to cover here. And I think that... Um, this resuscitation of interest, I mean, of course, the counterculture never died. It was always there, but it was in a more, you know, and certainly, you know, psychedelics were incredibly influential in the early days of the computer, you know, the personal computer. So clearly, it had enormous impact on our music and culture and technology, but it, you know, it's not something people talked about as much as they did. That counterculture continued to exist. But, but recently, there's been a renewal of the conversation in a more mainstream way for two reasons. One is that there's been... Um, as we're going to discover, uh, really a, a recrudescence of really serious, uh, well-designed research that's very, very promising about the me medical potential of these substances in, in many wonderful ways. And there's also been this kind of counterculture, you know, uh, interesting uh, ayahuasca tourism and these, uh, you know, the, the sort of more, that's something we're not going to address that much today, but those have sort of been the two wings of, you know, a movie like Avatar is completely 
you know, bathed in ayahuasca symbolism, um, and it was one of the biggest selling movies of all time. So th those are two interesting ways in which there's been a kind of renewal of uh, interest. But today we're going to focus especially, not only, but especially on the research that's being done on the, um, the use as, as healing tools of, of psychedelics. So um, we're going to proceed from left to right, um, uh, not politically, but, you know, uh, um, <laughs> Spatially, um, um, and um, and uh, we're going to begin with Phil Wolfson here, who's an MD and um, is doing something very exciting, which he's the principal investigator of the first Bay Area MAPS um, sponsored study of MDMA assisted psychotherapy. And now MDMA, I, I assume most of you know that, but is also known as ecstasy in the uh, underground parlance. And um, two organizations have really been working. Uh, especially uh, in a really courageous, intense, rigorous way, MAPS and the Hefter Institute. And Robert Barnhart is on the board of both these organizations, and we'll be talking about him in a second. But um, it, MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. The Hefter Institute is the Hefter Institute. Um, but both of these um, organizations, MAPS is especially um, lobbying and pushing and designing studies that the, will be accepted by the DEA. They do them in many different countries. A lot of it has been about P the use of MDMA to treat PTSD for rape victims, for uh, wounded soldiers, I mean soldiers who are suffering, returning from war, and so on, uh, with very promising results. And it's really a, a Herculean labor to convince all these government bureaucracies to give permission for all these things. Thankfully, there's been a beginning of a, you know, softening, but it's still, uh, people who do this kind of thing are really heroic in their willingness to fill out forms and uh, answer a lot of questions. But anyway, so Phil is going to discuss his, um, his studies that are taking place right, right around the, the corner here. So this is a, uh, it's not local food, but it's a uh, local MDMA. So no, uh, you know. <laughs> Or local psychotherapy, in any case. So, so yeah. we deliver, but we don't. Deliver. Right. So we'll begin with Phil, and then I'll introduce our other speakers after he's done. Okay. And the format of this uh, is going to be that um, our speakers are going to talk, you know, 12, 15 minutes or so each, uh, and then we'll have a little bit of discussion, and then we'll open it up for Q and A at the end of that. All right. Take it away, Phil. Okay. My man hooked up. Okay. You want to hook me up? I'm not sure where. Where? There we go. Yeah. While we're doing that, I'd like to introduce my uh, partner in crime and co-therapist, Julaine Andres, who is uh, to totally involved in our study together and is here with me. I'm not a geek. Though I'm thinking of changing my name to Biophilia. That sounds nice. <laughs> okay, great. So uh, I'm a psychiatrist and psychotherapist. I've been doing this for, oh, 40 plus years since I graduated from medical school, even during medical school. And my uh, pride uh, of life has been to uh, do what I feel has been deepening uh, of psychotherapy personally and in my uh, uh, work life over these many years, of which psychedelics have been a major part. And I'm gonna take you through that, and uh, I call this the deep magic of psychedelic psychotherapy because I think its potential for revolutionizing the field uh, is enormous, and uh, we'll go through some of the ways in which that can happen and what a psychotherapy is about. So, but before that, in the spirit of pioneers, 
I want to talk about the uh, principles of political, of practical utopianism. So uh, I used to be uh, just a utopian, but now I'm a practical utopian, brought on probably by miserable old age. But uh, I, I think reality confers on us a certain uh, province of having to be clear and understanding that uh, things may not occur in our own lifetime. And there are other lifetimes ahead in which uh, there will be uh, change and growth and development. We won't all see the uh, end point, which we thought of in the 60s as, quote, the revolution. Didn't happen. It's not about to happen. But I think we can all make a great contribution. So I tried to put together a sense of uh, what's guiding me and what I hope guides others. And that's uh, basically that we are committed to building world cu culture of love, sharing, connection, balance, sustainability, and kindness. And in doing that, if that's our goal, uh, and I am developing and practicing a, a form of secular Buddhism which is pragmatic, then I think we can say, in fact, it's not impossible, we can get there. And the liberatory principles of this carry us through all kinds of particularities, whether it's liberating the war on drugs or illegalization, or it's trying to get money out of politics, see my website, profounddemocracy.org. So uh, I think we don't say it's impossible, but we recognize that it's a long-term struggle and we have to sustain ourselves. With that in mind, and there's a lot of words up here and we won't, I won't read them all, um, psychedelics are tools of enabling growth and change within a framework of ongoing psychotherapy. Um, people do psychedelics more recreationally than they ever do in terms of a psychotherapy. That being the case, what we're doing in our work and what I really promote is the quality of set and setting, whether it's psychotherapy or not. If you're going to do substances of this sort, which are serious substances, do them in a proper place where you have help and you're not going to freak out and you have brothers and sisters available. So to me, psychedelic means more than just mind manifesting. In my practice, it also means mind relational and cultural expansiveness and enhanced awareness. And there's an ethical aspect uh, involved. So we're close in some ways to having a repertoire that I think would suffice as a, a, a way of doing of having enough tools to do a serious psychedelic psychotherapy. Right now, we have medical marijuana. We have marijuana even on a national platform level being advocated. And marijuana is a terrific substance in many ways for uh, helping us to grow and change for uh, sexuality, sensuality, for reducing PTSD. It's not for everyone. About 60% of people have a good experience on marijuana. A bunch of people fall asleep or become comatose or just can't stand the stuff. But a lot of people have a, an amazing experience. And it, for me and in my personal life, it was an awakening. And I think marijuana is an important part of any psychedelic psychotherapy. MDMA is moving towards phase three studies, the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder studies that MAPS has conducted are almost through and we're collecting the data to put forth towards FDA to move towards a much larger phase three study, which is a necessary study for moving ahead with, uh, towards having prescription 
potentiality. So prescription potentiality still means it's going to be controlled by MDs, but MAPS and we are promoting a uh, facilitated, deeply uh, assisted psychotherapy, so it's not just about dropping MDMA. And MDMA, from my point of view, is the substance par excellence for doing psychotherapy, and I've been doing it since the early 80s, then went, had to stop, and now we've because of the study, been able to do it again. It's excellent because it does two things. It makes for us the possibility of positive experience, empathic experience more available. It helps us reduce our defensiveness towards others and ourselves, and it enables us to handle negative emotions much more uh, easily. Those two things have been demonstrated time and again, both clinically in the 80s, and I'll show you some of that, the pictures of us, and uh, until it was made illegal in 1985, and by fMRI studies, which I won't have time to go into, which produce the same kind of verification of result. So MDMA uh, is not going to be potentially available for prescription until 2020, 2021, barring you know catastrophes of political nature, et cetera. The studies have been excellent, and they're moving. Uh, carefully and clearly towards a, a good outcome, but we have to wait and see what will occur. Uh, psilocybin mushrooms. I was a founder of Hefter, actually, and the Hefter studies at uh, Johns Hopkins and NYU <clears throat> are profound in terms of the kind of spiritual, emotional peak experience uh, that people have from mushrooms, psilocybin, uh, that's one of the great uh, mind benders. People think it's psilocybin, not mushrooms, so it's more kosher. You can talk about it. Um, and, and psychedelics tend to be very safe drugs uh, for the most part, uh, and psilocybin is certainly a safe drug, and it is being uh, studied in fairly large doses. So that's another tool in psychotherapy, to have the ability to help people have peak experiences. A legal substance, Schedule Three, which means I can use it off-label as a psychiatrist, is ketamine. And ketamine is a peak experience producer par excellence. You know, it's a kind of thing where if you do a transformational experience, which I'm an advocate of, one lets go and travels. The traveling is about 45 minutes. You come back, you got about two, three hours of being under. And it's an amazing interruption of ordinary consciousness and often a very psychedelic, colorful, and extraordinary experience that you can't do therapy while under the influence, but you can do integrative therapy with all of these peak experience drugs differently from MDMA. So I see the panoply as marijuana for its particularities, MDMA as a substance that enables really wonderful connection and formal psychotherapy in the best sense, and peak experience uh, uh, traveling, uh, which teaches us other things. And that's not to uh, put down any other substances or say that ayahuasca isn't useful or DMT or 2CV, et cetera, but I think, or LSD, but I think these are uh, the core four, if I were to design a psychedelic psychotherapy, that I would be able to use effectively and safely with people. Ketamine does have an addiction potential. So this is us in 1984 at Esalen. You may recognize some people here. They've been at Bioneers before. 
the bearded lord of all, you can remember him, Andy Weil. It's George Greer, who was one of the early uh, uh, writers on MDMA. Uh, Myron Stolaroff, uh, Leo, uh, Leo, uh, um, I'll get it, 72-year-old brain, et cetera, et cetera. Sasha Shulgin is in the back. Who's that? I don't know him. <laughs> so you can see Rupert Sheldrake, lots of people whose names we, we know. And so that was a seminal time in which the underground became the overground. We were working in legal times, and we generated a psychotherapy, which we had to unfortunately abandon in 1985. I, I, one got deleted. Okay, what we learned and what we were learning, much of what I've talked about, I, I don't have enough time to go through all of this, uh, but it created a greater sense of openness to others. I think we learned basically what we know now and what we're doing now is applying that information within a formal FDA process to uh, move towards a prescription basis, semi-legality for psychotherapeutic, psychiatric use. But what people do on their own is pretty much this stuff. When it stopped, we were developing a new multidisciplinary, many-faceted therapeutic loose community of practitioners, uh, and the boundaries were fluid, shaped by interest in the uh, project itself and its uh, uh, utility and benefits to human beings. So what I call a network, a réseau. Uh, this is my son Noah. He died of leukemia when he was near 17. Uh, he's the source of much of my learning and, of course, of my grief. Um, Two things came together. Rick Doblin of MAPS asked me, because he knew me well from that photo you saw, uh, to come together uh, with MAPS and produce uh, a project on anxiety and life-threatening illness, which would be a further extension of our studies to show the benefits of MDMA. So two streams, uh, my son's illness, my being a doctor and working with people near death and dying, and uh, my Buddhist background and my uh, interest in MDMA psychotherapy came together, and I was very honored to start the study. Uh, an MDMA phase two, meaning we have 18 subjects. It's not a huge study, but it's a study because of its intensity. that will take a year and a half. Oop, sorry. Uh, and these are just some of the aspects of life-threatening illness that we deal with. I'll let you take a quick look. And uh, some of the sensitivities and manifestations that occur with people we we're dealing with who have the possibility of recurrence, relapse, and death. So we're oriented towards working, towards helping people to come to accommodations of what life may remain, of the risks, dangers, and of their uh, quality of life and what they wish to do with their lives. So uh, I want to spend a little more time on this because the heart of all of this is uh, assisted psychotherapy. We're not doing MDMA just to give people a drug. We're giving people an experience within the total framework of very intensive psychotherapy. I'll show you the chart on that in a moment. So these are what I regard as essential principles for psychotherapy and I want to go through them quickly. Uh, in the uh, uh, strongest sense, we try and build a nest. 
a safe, warm, and comfortable place, attentive to people's needs. If you don't build the nest, you don't make a connection. Uh, this has been the heart of much of psychotherapy that works. We center on the particularities of the individual, his or her social context, and involve their important support people. We see this as a community uh, uh, work, not as a solitary work. Uh, it's not method, but person-sensitive, not interpretive, but evocative. We don't lay things on people. It's because of your Oedipal complex. You want to marry your father or whatever. Um, but we aren't afraid of making positive mind-expanding efforts with people because that's really the job of a psychotherapist who's on the ball is to try and bring new experience to people. We allow for the unfolding of concerns without pressure, building trust with sem sensitivity, empathy, and interest. Uh, pardon the typo. We always offer to go deeper and encourage that. We don't block expressions of feeling that may be disturbing to therapists or subject. We work with feelings. We're not trying to stop people from having feelings. We're trying to help people have feelings and to be with those feelings and to not be terrified of them. And MDMA, as I pointed out, is great for that. MDMA sessions and the uh, integration sessions that follow give time for building depth and understanding, for growing expressivity and self-awareness, for regression and then movement to greater coping and satisfaction, to letting go of fear and envisioning possibility. The use of meditative and musical means uh, set tone and spirit. We use breath and holotropic techniques. Uh, we have conversations that enable clarity and strength that grow real hope and action. We meet with family and significant others. How much time do I got? Um, two minutes, good. We f try and find the humor, the dance, and the song. Be realistic as appropriate in concert with subjects' ability to see their being their aspirations and their awareness, et cetera. Uh, okay, that got blanked. Oh, there it is. Uh, this is the nature of the study. MDMA placebo administered during eight-hour experimental sessions, male and female therapists. Additional non-drug therapy sessions were placebo-controlled. So we have a, a split of the 18 subjects were blinded. In fact, we made a mistake. I thought someone had MDMA, they didn't, they had placebo, but they had quite an experience. <laughs> so I was very pleased. That's the heart of good therapy. This is who qualifies. Uh, this is kind of a sense of the scale of it, and you can see how frequent the uh, uh, non-drug uh, non sessions or placebo sessions are. This is our home setting. I'm not supposed to say that. The DEA is not supposed to know our address. Uh, publicly said, when we first came out, the first newspaper that picked us up was Al Jazeera. The DEA wrote to me and said, I guess the cat's out of the bag. Al Jazeera's got your address. Okay, great. So far, we haven't had any terrorists, but we have a safe in the house, and everything's locked up and airtight, and the street value of the MDMA we have is probably less than the cost of the safe, but that's the way it goes. This is where subjects stay overnight. I make furniture. And uh, forthcoming, uh, we, if you go to our website, we have uh, all kinds of things on there. And I am uh, very involved in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, having published this, which I hope you look at. Uh, in the, it's online. And we have a book coming out in a, in a few months called The Ketamine Papers. It's not The Cocaine Papers, I love Freud, but we, I like the name. And contact our study site.
That's it, sf at mdmasites.org or call us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So our next speaker is going to be Robert Barnhart. And I want to say that the reason we're having this panel is because Robert's film, A New, uh, the, the, a new, understanding. A new understanding, the Science of Psilocybin, the New Science of Psilocybin, is showing tonight. Is it at 7 or 7.30? 7 o'clock. At 7 o'clock in the Showcase Theater just across the remnant of the wetland here uh, at, uh, at the Marin Center. Um, and uh, so really he's the catalyst that brought all this together. So um, Robert, um, we mentioned before, is on the board both of MAPS and the Hefter Institute, the two most uh, important organizations working to uh, push forward psychedelic therapy. And he's going to talk to us about his film and about whatever he wants. So, so Robert, go for it. <laughs> I think I'll stand up and talk to everyone so you can um, see me. I don't have a slide presentation. Um, I'm, uh, I'm here because I've made this film, A New Understanding the Science of Psilocybin, which will be airing this evening at 7 p.m. And I thought I'd talk to you a bit today, firstly about my personal story and how I came to make a film about the psilocybin research that the Hefter Research Institute is doing, and then a little bit about the film itself. Um, I thought my personal story may fit in with Bioneers a little bit and following one's heart and how that sort of thing comes about in, in, our, in an organic manner. Um, this is the first film that I've produced. So if I go back to my high school years, I was in high school in the early 70s, and I had some interesting experiences with some of these substances when I was in high school. It was part of the general culture um, back then. I grew up in Houston, Texas. And um, I ended up uh, going to Emory University and studying comparative religion because when I read the work of the early um, medieval Christian mystics, the language they were talking about sounded like they understood the experiences that I had gone through when I was in high school. Then if you come up to my later, later 20s and my first marriage, um, my wife felt like I should go see a um, psychologist because she wasn't uh, sure about some of my experiences. So I went to see this family therapist, and it turns out I had some issues with my stepfather that we worked on. But in the course of this, he said, uh, he really surprised me, because I thought as I opened up to him, he might um, call in the little men in the white coats and they were gonna cart me off. And that didn't happen. He surprised me after a couple of months and he said, psychedelics are the only thing I've seen you get passionate about why don't you see what's happening in the field? And this was in about 1983, 84. And I said, the field? What are you talking about? I was about 27, 28. And he said, the field, the psychedelic fields. See what's happening in the research field. So I, I wrote some letters. I wrote to Tim Leary, who was alive at the time, and Andy Weil, and people wrote me back. And I got in touch with a fellow named Rick Doblin, who's gone on to created um, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And, um, initially, uh, Rick formed MAPS, and then he wanted $2,500 to do rat toxicity studies 
to see if, rat, if MDMA was safe for rats to take. And, and we did, we proved that in normal doses that rats are just fine if you give them MDMA. But we did that because he, Rick wanted to do phase one, phase two, and phase three studies, and they're getting ready to go into phase three studies. But the first step was these rat studies. So with philanthropy, a little bit of money, $2,500, took MAPS and Rick to the point where they're at getting ready to launch these phase three studies, which will cost somewhere around $20 million to do or so. So philanthropy is really important, and even if you don't have um, a lot of funds, a small amount to the right organization in the beginning can end up making a huge um, difference over time. So I, I got to know I got to know Rick, and time passed. Then the uh, the Hefter Institute, um, Dave Nichols started that in the 90s, and I got on board with that. And uh, after some time, then I was on. Dave Nichols put me on the board of the Hefter. Um, Institute as well, both coming into these positions through um, philanthropy. So I got to meet all the doctors and the researchers involved in this field, MAPS primarily working with MDMA and Hefter primarily working with um, psilocybin. Um, so then if we come up to about 2000 and uh, I'm in my, uh, in my late 40s, at this point, I have a, um, uh, uh, I have a young, I have a young daughter. I'm 49 years old, and my daughter Phoebe's born. So a friend of mine comes to me and says, "Robert, you're almost 50 years old when your daughter's born. Why don't you make a little home movie for your daughter to show her what your, what your, what Daddy cares about?" What we, and I, I envision talking to the camera and some of my values and just kind of little home movie. And then, and then the, um, the, the filmmaker who was helping me with this really low budget said, um, I'd like to interview your father or your sister, a few prominent people in your lives, just to round it out a little bit. And I said, okay, her name's Roz Dauber. And uh, Roz went on to be the field director and um, was prominent in helping... Uh, helping me produce this film. Um, so, and, and then a couple, the two of the people she interviewed was Charlie Grobe, at, who's the head of child psychology at UCLA Harbor University. And uh, uh, Charlie did some of the uh, initial uh, uh, psychedelic studies with MDMA and psilocybin. He's currently working, I believe, with MDMA and autism down in UCLA, but she interviewed him and then she also interviewed Joseph Subinando, the president of California Institute of Integral Studies here in San Francisco. And she came back to me and said, I think you've got material for a documentary here. So I turned her loose with a camera and we started filming. So this is from my psychologist back in that day telling me I should just follow my heart and see what's happening in the field. So Roz started filming. And then she came to me and she said, we need subjects who've legally participated in these studies. And um, we went to the Hefter Institute and they opened up their psilocybin patients to me. So we filmed their psilocybin patients. And that's what focused the film on the research of the Hefter Research Institute. I didn't wake up one morning and realize, oh, this is big in the news. Why don't I make a film on this? And, and that would be great. And 
so that that's what centered it. So my idea was is there are plenty of films made on this for people who are interested in psychedelic medicines, but there are not a lot of films that I see as the general public or as an educational tool. And this psychedelic research has, to my thinking, has been so stigmatized by the 60s as these medicines being part of a subculture. Or you've got to go to Grateful Dead shows or something like this, or raves or something, to do these kinds of, kinds of things. And I wanted to take the subculture out of it. And for me, this is not just a medical issue. You don't have to be sick to get better. Um, it's also a spiritual issue. But trying to integrate this into society, our society understands the medical model. So we're working with the, the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, if you can, can show them that a drug does not have a high potential for abuse and it has a medical use, then it can be, become a prescription medicine. And that's what Hefter, it's not a, um, a drug policy group. They're just a scientific group, but they're working to um, move psilocybin from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 so it can be used in psychotherapy, not just to take the medicine home and do whatever you want with it, but as part of a therapeutic protocol that you would do with your, um, with your um, therapist. So, so the fact that they opened, the, opened the, the, their subjects up centered it on this... Um, on, um, on psilocybin, and uh, uh, it was quite a process finishing the film, raising my raising my young daughter, taking care of business, and not knowing anything about how to make a film, having made a film before, putting a crew together, and be able to do this. And I almost quit um, at one one point. Um, I'd had it, and I'd just about done. And I asked my my daughter, "What do you think I ought to do?" And she was about eight years old. And she gave me three, four reasons. Um, three of them I honestly don't remember. And one of them, she looked at me and she said, Daddy, I started working on this when she was about four or five. She said, Daddy, you've come this far. I really think you ought to finish it. And then um, um, Bill Richards at the, um, at the uh, Johns Hopkins University sent me an email and said, what's going on with your film? And I said, I, I don't know, Bill. And he said, I think you ought to finish it. So I found some people and put in the crew together again, and we, um, we finished it last March. And so the film is about, thank you, and the film is about the re research that the Hefter in Institute's doing. What is that? So there's research at, that's been at, at UCLA, Johns Hopkins, and NYU in New York, primarily working with terminal cancer patients, they have end-of-life anxiety. And this is really crippling anxiety. These are people that have gotten a diagnosis that they're going to, they've got a eight months, a year, two years, three years to live. My, mo my mother passed away of leukemia when I was 17. She got sick with it when I was 15. I watched her go through the process, chemotherapy, the whole thing. It was really traumatic. I... Uh, I got cancer about 20 years ago. I had to go through chemotherapy. I had to deal, I had to deal with all that. So I under, understand, I made it through, I'm fine, I'm grateful to be here, but I understand what end of life anxiety is like. People get paralyzed. They're so filled with the fear, imminent fear of their death, with regret, 
with worries in their head about what's going to happen when they die, that they stop living. And they may have quality time where they could have closure with their loved ones, have meaningful, meaningful days at the rest of their life, and they don't because they're so paralyzed. <clears throat> so the Hefter Institute is part of a therapeutic protocol at um, UCLA, Johns Hopkins, and NYU, in these really nice living room settings. We'll <clears throat> dose the patient, lay them down on a couch, eye shades, headset, standardized um, music, male-female dyad, say six weeks or so of therapy before the session, follow-up therapy afterwards, give them a fairly, fairly high dose. They go internally, work on the material. If something comes up, they can talk to the therapist. So in my film, I, I encourage you all to come see it. So I'll try not to tell you too much, but just a little bit about background about how this works. Um, I gave a little bit of the history of where psilocybin comes from, that it didn't just come out of a laboratory in the 60s by some crazy hippies, that it's been used by the Mazatec Indians as a healing and spiritual tool for centuries among other indigenous cultures in the world. A little bit about how it works in the brain and serotonin 2A receptors, and it's altering the serotonin and the uptake of the serotonin in the brain a little bit. It's not causing any brain damage or doing anything organically to hurt the brain. It's non-toxic and complete. I'm, I'm just a filmmaker. I'm not a, a biochemist or whatever you'd call it. But it's safe in the human brain, and we show that. Then we have a little bit about the researchers um, talking about what they feel like it should do, why they're doing this, why they, and it's a labor of love for them. They've got their normal practices, their normal research, they've got families to raise. In a lot of cases, they're, they're, they're moonlighting doing this work extra time. So they're talking about why this is meaningful, what stage, stage one, two, three phase studies are, what schedule one, two, three, and four are, and what they expect, what the results they expect. And then we have three of the patients testifying on this. Um, What's interesting is, to me, is, as I understand it, is a placebo is 30% effective. You can take a sugar pill that put somebody through therapy. 30% of the time, they're, they're going to get better. So you've got to show that this medicine is going to statistically be more effective than a, um, than a placebo. And as I understand it, psilocybin is about in the 80 percentile effective range, which is like is um, is uh, huge. I've got two minutes. Um, one of the studies that was very interesting to me that we got um, FDA approval for at Johns Hopkins that Dr. Roland Griffiths conducted was the Healthy Normal study, and he conducted a study to see something titled something like this to see if psilocybin could occasion a lasting and meaningful spiritual experience in healthy normals. So they took healthy normal people that had never had a psychedelic experience before, gave them a psychedelic experience, and 80 plus percent people said that this was one of the top most meaningful experiences in their life, like giving birth to their child or whatever would be profoundly meaningful. And these were the healthy normals. And we have one of the healthy normals, Sandy Lundahl, in our film. Um, and again, I made the film for a general audience to take the subculture out of it, that these medicines or substances, sacred substances, could be useful. They're not for everybody. 
there, and there are many ways to um, be fully human and experience our human consciousness. But for those that do want it, we want it of working to educate people to legit, legitimize this in society so people don't have to be fear of being locked in a cage for doing these things. And I try to, my best to take the subculture out of it, that regardless of your religion, ethnic affiliation, country you live in, age, whatever, this could be useful for a wide variety of people across the board. And I did my best to document the research on its own merit without any ax to grind or angle or particular perspective, just this is what's happening, here's the research, you know, to do with it um, as you will. Thank you very much for uh, listening. I, uh, I, I was a very private person before I made this film, so this is my first occasion to stand up and talk to you guys. So thank you so much for listening. So before we move to our last speaker, I, I want to uh, mention that there's a book that I actually helped edit, although I don't get any money for it, so this is not a... A greed pitch, but um, we edited about 15 years of talks at Bioneers a few years ago on the topic of visionary plants, and it includes a lot of the folks who were in that photo, you know, Andy Weil and Terrence and Wade Davis and, and so on. So there are some at the bookstore over there across the, uh, across the bridge. Yeah, I am doing a book signing, but, you know. Uh, right after this, I've been racing around the campus today doing various chores. Anyway, last but definitely not least, we're going to get a little more into the mythopoetic cultural aspects of this, I guess, I think, I don't know. I'm, I'm prepared to be surprised. But our last speaker is Mitch Schultz, and um, he's the director of a great documentary, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, which I recommend very highly. Um, and um, I see here language, I hope that you're comfortable with it, a transmedia storyteller. Does that, does that feel good? Yeah? Okay. All right. Um, uh, and who, whose work explores the inherent connection between consciousness, nature, culture, and the evolving human story. Now, that definitely fits very well with Bioneers. He's the creator of Mythify, an open-source media art and distribution platform for emerging ideas. So, the very interesting, cutting-edge Mitchells. Take it away. Thank you. Thanks uh, to all of you for showing up today as well and uh, giving us a portion of your day. Um, yeah, I will come at this at a slightly different angle. I'm not a researcher, um, filmmaker, storyteller. And I guess it started with DMT for me after living pretty fast and furious life in New York and trying to, I don't know, I was probably running from death or running right towards it in a lot of ways. And it was my first DMT experience that <clears throat> stopped me in my tracks, got me to question who I was and how I fit into this greater structure or this endomatrix that we're all in. And when that first happened, I thought I was going to make the strangest, weirdest film of all times. And once I started going and interviewing the researchers, talking to the, uh, the subjects that were part of the study, it started to change me and also change the entire story and what we were trying to do with this. It was no longer just about putting this out of this amazing experience, but what was happening around death and dying, living, even how we were growing food and how we were treating one another. 
because these things were directly tied into, and you hear this a lot with other psychedelic experiences, you see it's all connected or you feel it's all connected, and that may last just for a glimpse, uh, but it is something that when you come back, uh, it expands, it pulls that rubber band apart, and it never goes back to where it was. So as we were putting that, <clears throat> that film together, I started to realize that there was so much amazing content that was getting thrown on the old cutting room floor. So 1% of our interview footage out of about 100 hours made it into that documentary. And as we were started to think about what's going what's to happen with all this, we came up with, we need to start sharing this information. We need to start putting this out beyond just the hour, hour and a half film and putting out all of these interviews, even our visual effects and our sound files to help kind of push the dialogue a little bit. Um, I feel that putting that stuff out is going to make a bigger difference than just having the film out there. Um, and that's one of the reasons that Robert and I connected to, to, work on, uh, to work on his film. And starting to look at how all of this stuff, because I think some of the best research that's out there um, has taken place in the underground and continues to take place in the underground. There's so many experiences out there that people are just wanting to share because they are so profound and they don't have a place to go do this. They don't have a place to say, well, I was out of my body traveling across space and time and talking to disembodied entities. You sound a little crazy sometimes. Um, <clears throat> but coming together and being in a safe place to do that um, amongst community members, it, uh, it really helps ease that process and also gives a little bit of um, resonance to go out into your life and, and be okay with this and, and, and talk about it in a way that's not going to be damning to yourself, family, friends, or even the ideascape that's out there. So the, the next part of that was not just releasing this footage and being able to share what these researchers were doing, the people that were involved in the studies, but how is this thing taking place over our entire human story? We can go out there and we can have these amazing experiences, mind-bending, and when we come back, though, what are we doing with those? How are they fitting in to our natural environment? Again, how are we treating one another? How are we growing food? How do we understand our relationship with other animals? Um, and then it, again, goes a little further. What are we doing to celebrate that life, that awareness, art, music? And then how are we sharing that with one another as well? So all these things became part of what, what we're calling Mythify. And an open source platform where it's not just our media that's going out, but other people's media. Um, and also a way for people to come connect and share ideas. So, <clears throat> It wasn't just the one film. It's definitely impacted my entire life. In fact, I feel like it saved my life. And I think it's going to continue to be a part of that. And I want to continue to bring as much knowledge and information from other individuals to share with you guys and everybody else out in the world. So <clears throat> I guess that's probably it. I'd like to leave it at that and just say I want to thank Bioneers for having us. Mr. Robert, for, uh, for pulling this all together here. And uh, thank all of you for being here and being part of this conversation. Thanks. Um, so I thought what we'd do, before we open up questions, just see if there are any follow-up comments or reactions to anything you've heard here um, that you want to kick in and then, you know, a few minutes each and then maybe we'll open it up for Q&A. So, no? You just open it up. 
Yeah, Robert, you, you're good? Or? I'm good. Yeah, all right, so um, there's a mic here. Ah, there's just one mic. Uh, oh, no, there's a mic back there as well. So you can line up, but uh, please ask actual questions. You know, as I always say, think haiku, not Tolstoy. You know, uh, you know, um, you know, short to the point and... Uh, uh. All right, so, um, yes, this gentleman. Oh. It's coming. Yeah. Well, I'm really tremendously grateful for the uh, psychotherapy that's happening with MDMA because it's been an important experience in my life um, for many years. And my one frustration is that I believe much anecdotal information and my most profound healings of deep trauma have found that MDMA in combination with psychedelics are far more powerful. And um, I w that avenue doesn't seem to be um, approachable in the research world at all yet. And I'm hoping that will, if anybody knows anything about how that might move. Yeah, how, I mean, is there anything going to be happening with that? Is there any kind of direction of that? Is there any talk within the research community about doing work with those substances in combination in therapy? So MDMA and psychedelics together at the same time. It's, uh, in terms of research, that's improbable because you have to specify a drug at a time. So you can't really do combinations. You have to get one, then you can do combinations if you get two. But until you have uh, proof of concept and safety and tolerability in phase three, you can't merge drugs. So that won't happen for a long time. I agree with you. It's wonderful, and it's a, some exploration that um, I think will be coming. It's not, probably not going to be happening in the research, at least right away. Yeah. Hey, how are you guys doing? Great. Good. How are you? Thank you so much for being here. Um, my first question is for the psych psychotherapy. Um, is that uh, legalization in 2020, 2021? Is that, is that psychotherapeutic setting mainly with one person at a time, or does that have the potential... Um, to be with groups? Uh, I don't think we can say that it'll be limited in a particular way. The problem is that once a drug is approved, it's approved generally as a substance per se. Like Prozac is not, for example, uh, mandated in any particular way, individual group, how you do it. Uh, but in our case and in the psilocybin case, we're looking at an integrated psychotherapy format. Whether that will be the actual way in which it's used uh, once uh, a phase three approval moves to prescription is totally unclear. But I think once a drug is made open for prescription, there's no limit on how you use it, whether it's a group, an individual, couples, whatever. Awesome. Um, my second question is for... Um it sounds like it's taking MDMA a long time to get legalized. It's all these loops and it's all these um, legal bureaucratic processes. And, you know, thank you for being in that process for all of us. Um, it seems that a lot of other drugs that are clearly harmful to us, that are clearly addictive, are legal. And I'm curious, if those are the two factors, is it healing and is it non-addictive? Why is it taking so much longer and why do other uh, pharmaceutical drugs, which are so clearly destructive to our lives, uh, Legal. Wow, yeah. 
and we could talk for hours on, on probably why that is. And I think there are, you know, many, many complex issues that feed into that. Um, one of the biggest ones that I, I see myself personally is the expansiveness of those experiences um, because they change the way you look at everything else around you, um, the political structure, the economic structure, uh, health, and I don't want to fall into the conspiracy camp, but I think that there, you know, there was this reaction period from the 60s and 70s that is carrying through. And I think it's part of even, almost even comparable to what we're seeing with fossil fuels now. It's gonna take some time to unravel that thing. It's not gonna be shut down tomorrow, but we're working on it and it's happening. Um, it's, it is a little frustrating because those, those compounds can help get rid of addictions. Um, and have a big impact on that. So I'm hoping that that speeds some of that up, and maybe we'll see those substances be illegal. <laughs> I would just add that any uh, new substance that's shown to have a kind of psychedelic uh, aspect, as soon as it comes to the attention of the DEA, it's put into Schedule One. That happens as we're speaking, probably. There are things in process to go to Schedule One. So that whole tendency of war on drugs remains the dominant cultural hegemonic aspect. We need to defeat that. That really has to stop. Good, I think we have good, good. Okay, good, let's go over mic number two. Uh, hi, thanks, thanks very much for the various talkers. Um, I was curious about the, kind of following this, the thread of history um, of psychedelic use in various cultures and given given the awareness of how transformative and powerful that experience is what historically has kept it so marginalized it's a similar question yeah within indigenous use mainly yeah. is that yeah exactly okay. yeah. yeah again that's a really broad question that could be, uh, we could d discuss it at great length. What comes to my mind historically is the Eleusinian mysteries in Greece that date back to about 1500 BCE, where the um, Greeks had these uh, uh, um, mystery rites around Demeter and Persephone and uh, death and rebirth, and they were drinking uh, a, ke uh, a brew called Kekanon. And it um, was integrated into part of, part of the culture, and it went on to about 300 A.D., or I'm not exactly sure, somewhere around, around there. And um, so then that, that was part of that culture, and that worked. And um, then I'm not, a, I'm not a historian. I'm a filmmaker. But then as I understand this, you get things like the, the Roman Catholic Church coming in to, up into Europe, and you had the, the Celtic people with the women up there who got sort of demonized as the witches that understood how to use henbane and mandrake and all these various things, um, perhaps some mushrooms in there too. And, um, and the, uh, the church um, was threatened by those things for whatever reason that might have been. And I, I was raised in a Christian setting, and um, but the polit politics back there were such, and I think Mitch was touching on this with the... With the uh, pharmaceutical industry and, the, and the, the governmental structure is this can open up somebody's mind where you can look at different perspectives, come at things from a different way, and there may be people with certain power structures that are invested in certain power structures, and they feel threatened or insecure by having, um, 
having people uh, be able to think for themselves and not necessarily need certain elements of that power structure. So that's just my own thinking on that. And But it's a really deep subject that there are book, hundreds of pages, books, many books written on this subject. Oh, cool. I think there's something, if I could just really quick, um, <clears throat> looking at just indigenous use or, or natural plant medicines, that's happening in this country has started with kind of the Native American church um, and setting a legal precedent for being able to take a sacrament, um, especially if it had a spiritual approach. And I think that's part of what's happening now after the, the backlash from the 60s is saying what's going on here and how are we doing these medicines and what's the, what's the intent before we're stepping into it. And now looking at the UDV and the Santo Daime, the, the groundwork has been laid and being laid even more uh, if we're cautious about what we're doing and how we're approaching these and not taking it, everybody should be eating these. Um, and I think that's starting to change a little bit. So I think there is some hope around that too, um, within a spiritual or, or beneficial context, so. I would just add that if uh, uh, we follow what's happening with marijuana as an example of a mass movement that's saying this is not a destructive substance, let's make it legal and not put people in jail for having a mind-opening experience, that mass movements will change this probably a lot faster than going to the FDA and DEA. So the more we recognize that hundreds of millions of doses of various things are going down people's throats, noses, and <laughs> into their arms, and that's happening whether or not the DEA says okay to it, the more we should champion not being in prison for freedom of mind, I'm a child of the 60s. I grew up under McCarthy. I remember the tightness of those times in the 50s. The 60s were liberating, and we did have a lot of uh, great times in opening, and uh, they were suppressed, and we're living in the remnants of that suppression, which continues to be uh, on top of us. Go ahead, Kay. Um, well, first of all, I want to thank you very much for the work that you're doing in, in bringing wonderful things into a positive social context and medical context. Um, I feel a great connection, and I was going to, the first thing I was going to say was mention Native American Church, so I guess the connection <laughs> is working. Um, but just to point out that according to the U.S. Supreme Court, the use of these substances for what they call bona fide religious purposes cannot be stopped by Congress or by the President. And so that's a very important other context to always keep in mind. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing I wanted to do is just point out what I consider to be a great resource um, online in the Bay Area, an organization called um, Entheogenic Research Integration and Education. Uh, the acronym for that is ERIE, E-R-I-E, and their website is erievision.org. And their mission is spreading knowledge about this substance for the benefit of humanity through every conceivable means, uh, scientific, cultural, and every other way. They have regular meetings to discuss these things, and I, I think they're a great resource. So thank great. you. Thanks. We should also mention Arrowhead. Arrowhead. If you uh, really have an issue, you want to look up something about a substance, what people think, what people are doing, yes. toxicity, et cetera, go to E-R-O-W-I-D. They also deserve your support in terms of financial contributions. Yeah, they have millions of pages. I mean, literally every research paper, every article, every uh, every book that's ever been written on these topics. So it's an amazing resource, yeah. Um, okay. It's E-R-O-W-I-D. Uh, dot org. Dot org, yeah, and just uh, Arrowid, yeah.
Go ahead. Yes, I wondered if you could say anything about the autism study and give more definite uh, reference to where I could find out more about it. Um, autism study. Uh, the autism study has been concluded. Uh, there's talk of a new one coming up. But um, Alicia Danforth, who uh, was the co-investigator with Charlie Grobe, uh, had done a PhD thesis in which she saw high-functioning uh, Asperger-like people having breakthrough emotional uh, realization experiences uh, on MDMA that they had never known they could ex experience in such depth and feeling. And so there was a very sh small, I think it's 12 people, uh, but very successful study, the results of which aren't, I don't think are quite published yet, but should come out soon. So that also marijuana for high-functioning autism or even for helping uh, kids with deep autism, both being explored in some death, depth. But of course, MDMA isn't legal, so you can't use it for autism per se. So don't bother to mark up that tree by looking for research. That's something else you can check out in your way. Few questions. Um, uh, first, we'll limit it, we'll limit it to two because, to be fair, two short ones. Okay. Um, one, one or two short ones. The first one regarding MDMA and the use in psychotherapy. I learned from Stephen Anagnostaris at UCSD that you know after a dose, your natural production of serotonin is quite depleted. So I'm wondering what the risk factor is in administering MDMA to clients and the likelihood of then going in, you know, their baseline serotonin production being affected by the use in therapy. Um, biochemistry is a complex subject. Uh, the serotonergic properties of MDMA are one aspect. MDMA also has noradrenergic properties, very little dopaminergic properties. Mm -hmm. uh, many people, including me, have a down day the next day. A few people have a down midweek after use day, like third or fourth day. But everyone recovers. There's no evidence for long-term brain damage. Uh, in our study, we have people uh, sometimes having an, a, a kind of gray a negative day, the next day headachey and dry, but generally they come back to the uh, kind of feeling of uh, glow that people discuss. So much of the research that was done was fraudulent about uh, serotonergic uh, deficit by a man named Riccardi, who many of us knew, and he was actually dipping into a can of methamphetamine published in Science, had to be retracted, multiple studies, they're, you know, knowing hundreds of people, and there's been a good deal of research. You can look it up. Uh, there's good research out of Harvard showing a lack of long-term deficits. There are questions, but they're not significant ones. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, I guess my other question will be, um, so I work with, K I'm an MFT intern, and I work with kids in substance abuse, and um, I've you know, there's this issue where they're living in California where it's practically legal, maybe not entirely, but, um, and yet their parents' generation is still very in the mindset that marijuana is dangerous and that it can lead to all these things. My personal sort of dilemma is, like, how can we um, support giving, like, antidepressants and yet 
make kids think that like using marijuana or even adults that using marijuana to self-medicate is um, somehow dangerous and like why a natural substance like either way it's self-medicating one is more controlled and it's in a pill form and one is natural and um, perhaps more easily accessible I'm just wondering what your opinion is on that I'll speak from somebody from the substance abuse background um, and having taken antidepressants I, I, I think Yes, there is an issue with taking anything to cover anything. Mm-hmm. However, comparably speaking, I, I think it's kind of apples and oranges when you're talking about antidepressants and a natural plant like like mm-hmm. marijuana. Um, and I and I say that at the same time, um, am cautious a little bit too uh, because it, it can become a little bit too much. But I, I think some of the pharmaceutical stuff is is uh, is much more damaging, um, and, and it does not allow for any way to kind of integrate yourself into normal society mm-hmm. or normal ways of thinking, if you will. Um, and marijuana in a lot of ways taught me how to be more open and a little more accepting and be aware of my body more. Uh, whereas taking antidepressants, I was just kind of a flat line walking mm-hmm. around. And over time, I, I don't think that uh, those were beneficial in any way. And if anything, it really was covering it up. Hmm. you know, all the trauma that was underneath it. So it's a tough one. (laughs) There there is some controversial research that shows that uh, uh, chronic use in kids under the age of 15 may uh, promote a higher rate of schizophrenia. Hmm. That research is still controversial and questionable. But I would say that with kids who have brains forming, and brains are forming up to early 20s, that any sort of uh, compulsive use of a substance isn't particularly good. And and some of the pharmaceutical substances are certainly damaging as well in ways which we haven't even entirely understood. But I am really cautious about kids using drugs compulsively or too young, and I've seen a few damaged individuals from uh, much too young use of LSD in inappropriate set and setting or compulsive marijuana use. I think it leads people to a, an amotivational life if mm-hmm. that's the case. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, gentlemen, for being here. Um, I'm feeling drawn to begin experimenting with these different consciousness substances in the form of essential oils. And I'm wondering if you or anyone in the room um, can point me in the direction of someone or in your network that could help me with, uh, with doing that. And I'm also curious if um, any form of mushrooms are, are being extracted into essential oils right now. I haven't done any research online as of yet, but I'm just wondering if anyone's had any experience with that. Uh, the, o- the only thing I know of is marijuana is being produced uh, as very in oils with high CBD or high THC being used dermatologically. Um, you can go on the normal website to find out more about that, N-O-R-M-L, but otherwise I doubt that there are, anything's possible. So humans do anything. I actually have some expertise in that domain, uh, strangely. Um, <laughs> okay. Which is that I, I lived with many years for a woman who was an acupuncturist and a homeopath, and um, she had learned from a Sufi doctor whose name was Hakim Shishti, that this um, uh, very sensitive acupuncture point in the ear, and we used to experiment taking Q-tips, a, v- a variety of legal essential oils, Elang, Elang, you know, Neroli, and having parties where people would all 
put um, the Q-tips with different uh, essential oils, and we would get an ultra stage, not very mild, very subtle, but interesting. Um, so, um, so, you know, uh, so stick it in your ear. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the, the other thing I would say, though, is that um, with marijuana oils and um, edibles, you have to be very careful with dosage because they're much, much stronger than the smoked variety. So um, it's good to be wise, careful, you know, if you're going to do these things. But that's the only use of essential oils. You know, Actually, I have some essential oil of cacao from the Amazon here <laughs> in my pocket. Put it in my ear? It's like, oh, you know. Yeah, but that's not for, yeah, that's for licking, you know, so. Anyway, thank you. May I ask one more quick question? Uh, all right, quick, though. Okay. Um, I'm just curious if, if uh, any of you within your organizations are researching the connection between these different consciousness substances and the different regions of the brain that they're designed to activate and specifically different brain waves and brain wave states. We're in the process of constructing an fMRI study of pre and post use with MDMA. That's, there have been several studies along with psilocybin of MDMA. Carhart Harris is a, a good resource if you wanted to go and look at fMRI studies of brain imaging uh, uh, online. Good. Can I just say one quick thing to your previous question? Um, if, you, if you're looking at this stuff and haven't done it, I, I'd say do your research. Really know if you decide to go down that road, who you're getting it from and where you're getting it from, but, but really go out there and, and do your research before doing any of this. Yeah, these are serious substances and like any tool, you know, like you can kill someone with a hammer or build your house, you know, so you, they have to be uh, used intelligently, you know, so, uh, um, all right. Hi, um, um, I have had three surgeries and for people who have had traumatic experiences or may feel like that uh, powerful psychedelic may be traumatizing, uh, for instance, I'm not sure what kind of effect because I've you know, um, is it possible to take half doses or, or very s small doses, even supplemental doses, or do you be concerned about habits and, and, going in, and having lots in your system over time? It's always good to uh, develop a, a program of learning something. You don't need to blow yourself away. Uh, in the studies that Sasha Shulgin did on myriad substances, and you can look at his first book, PICAL, P-I-H, K-A-L. His research protocol for self-administration was to work up from microdoses to significant impact and notice the doses at which toxicity occurred. It's always good to start slow and not have a panic attack and do it under good set and setting. So if you're curious, do it with good people. There's no harm in doing it more than once. You learn the terrain. Thank you. There's a lot of microdosing going on out there, though, and some, and I think there's some research that's starting too with like LSD and, yeah. and some with yeah. headaches and yeah. Yeah, it's also true that there are some people who should never, never experiment Absolutely. with these substances. Anyone with a history of um, you know schizophrenia or you know so there are definitely and some people get very paranoid, uh, you know. So get to know yourself and you know be careful and you know gentle. <laughs> with the FDA studies that they're. Um, doing the rigorous screens that the doctors will put people through for um, both uh, or organic and then mental issues. And once they pass the screens, then they can do the studies. But I'm... Hello. <laughs> Thank you all Thank so you. much for um, the very good work that you do. And um, for, for like a warning, when you said that uh, 
for people who have schizophrenia, they need to be careful. That is the importance of elders and why we have elders. And so that leads to my question for you guys, is with these plant medicines that have such significant indigenous importance, how is the indigenous community being included within your research, your personal research, and then also within our community of research as we move forward into incorporating this integrative medicine of extreme significant plant spirit medicine, um, where, where are the people, who are the organizations that are really bringing in this integration of science and indigenous wisdom? Uh, I'm not sure I, I quite got it, but MAPS, yeah. MAPS has funded ayahuasca studies and uh, is doing so on a small scale. Um, one of the Hefter uh, people, Dennis McKenna, is looking into an ayahuasca study, and Charlie Grobe and he have written extensively on ayahuasca in uh, the Amazon. Are they being led with indigenous? Sorry, I, uh, are they being led with indigenous healers as well as scientific yes. researchers? Yes. With These are people, people studying indigenous methods, or the churches like the UDV or the Santo Daime Church, etc. So there is a lot of interest in that. Um, is there you know, a council that is making sure that the indigenous population is being respected during these researches? I, I'm not aware of such a thing. Maybe you are. Oh, you know, it's com very complicated cultural territory. And, and um, you know, the biggest organized group that uses sacred substance in the U.S. is the Native American church, and there are different branches of it. Some really uh, are Native American only, and others are, you know, other branches might be a little more open. but. Um, so the politics are very complex, and also what these studies are mostly with synthetic drugs. They're not with plant substances that we're talking about. Which are derived from native Well, they have to be uh, synthetic in order to standardize right. Uh, right. for FDA. Well, isn't that appropriation to a certain extent? Because you're appropriating a part of a plant that has a wholeness to it and then reapplying it somewhere else? Well, MDMA has always been a synthetic. Right, right, but right. Like mushrooms, ayahuasca, salvia. Even LSD. Yeah, but that's not what they're... Working with you know so much. You can't standardize ayahuasca, so you'd have to standardize the DMT uh -huh. and the Banisteriopsis, the T, the uh, the uh, MAOB component, in order to make it into a, a studied drug. You couldn't use the drug uh, as ayahuasca per se because of its complexity and its inability to uh, standardize it per dose. So you can't do those studies under FDA. I think we need to be a little cautious too. I, I, being aware of the sacred traditional use of these substances and if they are going to be utilized in some way for research, but marrying the two of those together, um, science and spirituality are very different concepts. And so shoving the Western mind into the Amazon to try to wrap their head around the animus world of ayahuasca actually I think has a lot more problems or difficulties than, than we even kind of fully are aware of sometimes. And uh, we're starting to come up, I think, in the West, if you will, with kind of our own context and our own ways of having these experiences. And that's not to discount what has come prior to that, but it's, it's taking into account that. I think what's ultimately starting to happen is that the community is going to start regulating, you know, what's happening, why is, is this a good place to go, is this not a good place to go, does this person have integrity with, what, with their work, um, if that's outside of the research uh, lab. So I, I just, I, it's, it, we've got to be cautious, I think, of putting and just slamming those two together um, because they are, they are very different approaches. 
And one last thing is, uh, we can talk about this later because it's a complex subject if, if we have a chance, but um, there are organizations in Peru or in Brazil of indigenous people, councils of, of uh, indigenous groups and so on who do have, but it's very contested territory because a lot of it is mestizo use, it's uh, urban churches like the UDV and the Santo Daime who are, so it's very complex and, you know, it's great questions, but I think we need a few days to unravel it and still not come up with a final a answer. Days. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hi, my name is Elliot Eisenberg. So I worked this year at the Zendo, which is the harm reduction, um, let's say, facility of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies at both um, Burning Man and then at another small function called Symbiosis. In both places, we found ourselves like in an ocean of LSD. So that was the substance of choice for many, many thousands of people, and particularly in the blotter form. And one of the things I've noticed in this panel is that there's not discussion of LSD experiments. I follow the maps magazine, and I noticed there's an experiment with LSD in Switzerland at the moment, but as far as I could see, there's no experiments that are double-blind controlled experiments in, uh, in North America. And I, I wondered both why that is and whether you do think that LSD has a potential for healing. To, to firstly comment on that, um, Peter Gasser in Switzerland ran a study with, with LSD. It was the first one done in 40 or 50 years mm -hmm. with, um, with, with cancer patients. Right. PTSD. P with PTSD. Mm -hmm. And I believe the major outcome of, of it was is he showed that it is safe to do studies with LSD with humans. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they were actually naive to any psychedelic... Uh, but in the United States, there's no uh, potentiality for getting LSD. Switzerland's an unusual situation. And why do you think that is, if it has such a healing potential? Because of the politics of our country. I think that's the one that's going to stand on the outside for a while, just because of the history of it. I mean, yeah. That's the first thing that comes to mind when you say psychedelic for a lot of people in the West is the LSD. There um, has been some promise, though, and I don't know about the study specifically. Maybe you do, but the uh, within cluster headaches mm -hmm. and LSD being That's microdosing, to, right? Um, I, I don't know if it's just microdosing for that, but I, I know that they've been able to to show some great benefits, and that that's saving lives, too, well, that because these could be tough. for... Could no, you prescribe? It's, not no. it's, uh, it's, awful. it's not even uh, legal. And yes, to answer your other question, it's a, an amazing medicine and can have a lot of benefit. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the Beckley Foundation in England, um, with, with Amanda Fielding working with David Nutt, they've started an LSD study with um, MRI scanner um, looking at how LSD affects the uh, fluid circulation in the, in the brain. Um, so that study is now underway. Hey, um, thank you for being here. And I'd like to extend my thanks to DMT, the Spirit Molecule. Um, the film it had a um, contribution to my awakening as well. So thank you for that. Um, and I had a quick question. It, it kind of rolled into, um, it might roll into the indigenous part of the medicine, but I'm, I'm wondering if today's um, psychology and science has done any research um, 
into the origins of psilocybin. Like the, I just came across the book um, Food of the Gods um, about uh, you know psilocybin growing in in the wild, and it came from a meteor, something crashed down and spread. But I'm not exactly sure if that's on point. So um, excuse me if I'm wrong. But I'm wondering if you had done any research into that. Um, psilocybin mushrooms. If you look at a map, go to Meriwet, a place like it, and look at the distribution of psilocybin-containing mushrooms. They're worldwide. It's quite extraordinary. But the only practice of using psilocybin mushrooms were was in uh, Mexico, and then the only surviving practice in Mexico was in uh, uh, the uh, Oaxaca area where. It was discovered by uh, Gordon Watson in the f in the uh, 50s, and Maria Sabina was the remarkable source of that. And people are still going on pilgrimages to that area to experience directly indigenous use of mushrooms. But that's the only real mushroom kind of cult, if you would have it, or mushroom uh, psychedelic experience that we know of at this point. And from my, uh, if my memory serves, Terence McKenna said something to the effect that the, he postulates that the mushroom spores are the extraterrestrial that's come from another dimension or outer space that may be engaging in some kind of linguistic symbiosis with the human species. Um, Terence is a great, was a great storyteller, and um, yeah. Agreed. Amazing. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it doesn't even have to come from off the planet because it, it can still have this wonderful alien linguistic exploration. I can't even do justice to what Terrence would say. But, yeah. Terrence said that the uh, discovery of mushrooms by early humans was the source of the intellectual leap and large brain size that we have. Terrence made up wonderful stories. I knew him well. In that picture I showed in the 80s, he was uh, very much a part of our culture, and he would sit or stand at Esalen over the creek and orate. He had a silver tongue, and he blessed us with many good stories. Um, well, but the thing to bear in mind is that they are stories, mm -hmm. and um, that people who study evolution seriously do not take some of those very seriously. So they're wonderful, but not to take things too literally. You know, it's... Um, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of mythopoetic elements. I don't that. think it's yeah. that far-fetched if we imagine our ancestors roaming plains or wherever yeah. to, to pick these up and have some experiences. I, I would also suggest uh, checking out uh, Graham Hancock's book, Supernatural, mm -hmm. um, oh. looking at the old cave art and, and postulating that there could be some connection there as well. But these so, are hypotheses. These are hypotheses, absolutely. There's a yeah. lot of fun yeah. stuff out there. We <laughs> can all make up some good stories. I'm sure anyone yeah. here could do it. So we only have about five minutes left. So what I suggest we do is maybe we'll try to harvest as many short questions as possible and see if we can synthesize. All right, so go ahead. Mine's, mine's quite short. I'm just wondering if, um, if any of these psychedelics have been shown to be effective in treating addictions. Uh, yes. Uh, virtually every psychedelic has been used for uh, addictions. Currently, there's an Ibogaine, several Ibogaine clinics in Mexico and in South America using the African route for helping with addiction within complex programs. There's some question of risk there. Ayahuasca is being used in uh, 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 addiction programs. Ketamine was used extensively by Krupitsky in Russia 
and still has a lot of merit, I think, uh, in terms of a, a coordinated abstinence program. Um, there are a lot of claims for all of them, MDMA, MDE, uh, offshore. Uh, the list is enormous. LSD was used extensively with great success for treatment of addictions. And alcohol, yeah. And, and alcohol. Well, I, I meant addictions, alcohol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. They, they help break the thought patterns, and that's, that's one of the biggest things that helps interrupt that, that um, the addiction a lot of times. Yeah. The Hefters just completed a study with um, nicotine addiction and psilocybin. It's been extremely successful, somewhere in the 80 percentile range of two, three day, two, three day a pack, pack a day smokers um, quitting. And uh, yeah, are there any recommendations on the frequency of taking psilocybin mushrooms in terms of decreasing returns on it, marginalizing returns on it, or recommended frequency of dosage? All substances should be used in an integrated fashion. It's not just about blowing your mind away. It's about coming back to this planet and using your wisdom and your learning in a real way that benefits you and the ones around you. So frequency of use is not the issue. If you do it too often, you get stuck in another world. Ketamine has addiction potential. People do it too often. Really get stuck in another world. You can look at John Lilly. Psilocybin over time, uh, you know, you can do it every few days. You could probably do it two, three days in a row. People do that and uh, people who trip people will use psilocybin, ketamine, LSD, ayahuasca several days in a row. Uh, it's exhausting. you got to take care of your head. Integration. It's, it's the key one. Somebody brought it up earlier, and as you're just bringing it up, this, it, that's an important aspect of having these experiences uh, because coming back from them, it is otherworldly in a way, and you have to start to recontextualize everything around you. So integration is very important, and that's the people around you, um, having those discussions and seeking out you know, any number of answers to, to help kind of put you back into this world, if you will. And these substances are, um, are keys. The experience is already inside of us. It's not in the, the brew or the pill or that sort of thing. They're keys that are going to unlock this thing that we're already... We're already there. So don't do anything. <laughs> uh, hi, my name is Kalia, and I have a nonprofit called Felcora that uh, focuses on mental health issues. And first of all, I wanted to commend the entire panel for what they're doing because I think the burden of suffering that we have right now in terms of mental illness and just mental unwellness is enormous. One in five by 2030 are going to have some sort of depression. And these are people that are actually feeling it and suffering. Um, so I thank you all for doing that. Um, I'm also a supporter of MAPS, and I think that the work that you're doing there is outstanding, um, specifically because it's so scientifically rigorous. And because of that, it is really moving the needle. But looking at this group that's been here today and even before there were more people and knowing that the majority of the people there, I mean, I don't know, I could probably do a show of hands, but who have done psychedelics is probably pretty high. All right. <laughs> Nobody's putting up their hand, but I know you're out there. Um, and being myself a public health specialist who did some work in ethnography, I kind of wonder whether, you know, we could do an almost crowdsourced qualitative study and I would be ha happy to work 
with MAPS or another organization to do that, where people just tell their stories of how these substances have helped them. And by pooling together that knowledge, we can also have sort of a multi-pronged approach to getting these substances out to where they can help people. Being used as a hammer uh, in the right way. <laughs> yeah, I think there are a lot of books written on that. There, there, it's also important to say there are hazards. You yeah. know, he was asking about how often to do it. You really want to come back. People who lose themselves, and people do lose themselves, uh, and we should acknowledge that, tend to do it in poor set and setting and too often with too much. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of us probably know people who got a bit lost or people who were casualties and hopefully came back. So both are true, and there's been a lot done that way. I think, you know, the issue is putting our feet down and saying we don't want people to go to jail for this. We want a, a, a program that's open for people using substances in an educated and thoughtful way without going to jail for doing this kind of stuff. I, 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 I hate to say this, but we have to end. I'm sorry, I have strict instructions because they have to convert all this into a dining room in a half an hour or so. Uh, thanks so much for coming. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Yeah. Good to meet you. Nice to meet you as well, finally. <laughs>